Inside one of my Bibles, I have a quotation that's written, and it's from the first century. It's about 2,000 years old from a early church pastor named Augustine. The quotation goes like this. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, but our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. Augustine knew this restlessness, and the restlessness that he experienced and talks about in a number of his writings relates to both his morality and his thinking. Augustine wrestled with the waywardness of his desires, and he wrestled with the waywardness of his thinking. In one of his books, he says this, I went to Carthage where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. My real need was for you, my God, who are the food of the soul. I was not aware of this hunger. I was willing to steal and steal I did, although I was not compelled by any lack. I was at the top of the school of rhetoric. I was pleased with my superior status and swollen with conceit. It was my ambition to be a good speaker for the unhallowed and inane purpose of gratifying human vanity. Augustine was lost. He was restless. In 386 AD, he was gloriously converted. And Augustine turned from his wayward ways, having met personally a relationship with Christ. He established a monastic community, wrote numerous books trying to refute various doctrinal errors. And Augustine is a early church father, so to speak, who is cherished, prized by both those of Protestant and Catholic backgrounds. He's regarded as one who influenced Western philosophy and Western Christianity. But his life took a very different direction when he met Christ. His life, both his desires and his thinking were radically changed. And aren't you thankful that Augustine is not the only one who knows that kind of change? At the core of who we are as human beings, There is a shift that takes place because of a relationship with Christ in both our desires and our thinking. If you're a Christian, you know what I'm talking about. The miracle of being converted means that Jesus has changed what you desire. Jesus has changed how you think. Those of you who are younger, teenagers, there are things that you desire that 15 years from now, you're gonna look back on this season of your life and you can't believe that you desired that. I promise you. There's things that you want, things that you long for, things that you covet that you'll look back and say, you know what, what was I thinking? As you grow older in life, you can look back on your experience and realize there are things about my desires and the things about my thinking that are deeply broken. And the good news is that Jesus can transform both what we desire, what we want, and what we love. If you're here today and you're not yet a Christian, you need to know that the hope that Christianity offers to you is this, a relationship with Jesus, more than a religious system, but a relationship with Jesus can deeply change you even more ways than you could possibly even know. You see, Jesus changes both what you want and he changes why you want it. 
And it's the miracle of what it means to be born again. In John chapter six, this gospel is laying before us the tragedy of wrong desires and wrong thinking. If you look in your Bible, could be a title on this particular paragraph, something like, I am the bread of life. And that's true, that's exactly what Jesus says. But you need to know that this text is not simply about Jesus claiming to be the bread of life. This is about Jesus claiming to be the bread of life with a group of people who are not believing. And John wants to set up this contrast because the whole Gospel of John is written in order to convince you that Jesus really is the Son of God so that you might believe and by believing have life in his name. This is a very, very important chapter in John's Gospel. It contains incredible mysteries, very pointed truths, and it helps us to understand the miracle of what it means to be converted. So today what I want to do is to show you this wrong desire and wrong thinking and how Jesus being the bread of life is the turning point or the fulcrum that makes a difference with how we think and makes a difference with what we desire. So first, here's wrong desires. The last time we were in the Gospel of John, we heard the story of Jesus feeding the 5,000. That was in chapter one, or chapter six rather, verse one through verse 21. And then in verse 22, we find that now here are these crowds, and they saw the disciples get into a boat, but Jesus wasn't in the boat. They look for Jesus, and they can't find him. So they assume that he's on the other side of the sea, but they know he didn't go there by boat. So they travel all the way to Capernaum, and they find him, and they ask him a series of questions. Question number one in verse 25. They say to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Like they can't figure the boat thing out. They saw the disciples get into the boat and Jesus is on the other side of the sea. When did you get here? Jesus, we know the story, verses 16 to 21 tells us that Jesus walked on water. And he could have said that. He could have said, well, I walked <laughs> on the water. But he doesn't tell them that and there's a reason. Because these people are seeking Jesus because they have wrong desires. And one of the tragedies of humanity is that we seek good things for the wrong reasons. That didn't end with the first century. Look at verse 26. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus is like, I know your game. You wanna know this, not because you're curious about my transportation methodology, you're curious about this because you want more bread. See, Jesus had fed 5,000 people. He took a couple loaves and some fish and he fed all of those people and they were enamored with not only the miracle but the fact that this guy gives us stuff for free. And so now they wanna be connected to him, they wanna see him, they wanna know where he is because they are interested in Jesus because he can meet their needs. This is part of their unbelief. Verse 27, Jesus challenges them to not work for food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Now notice this, in verse 27 he says, which the Son of Man will give. And what happens in this text over and over, Jesus keeps pointing them to himself. He keeps 
talking about this. He says, work for food that doesn't perish, which the Son of Man will give. But they don't hear the second half of the sentence. They only hear the first half. Their wrong desires cloud what they hear. Their wrong desires cause them to hear the words of Jesus, but they don't hear all of it. They only hear what they want to hear. They hear the things that will meet the needs that they're looking to fulfill. In other words, they're into Jesus because they want to use Jesus. They don't want to submit to Jesus. They want to use him. Take note that Jesus keeps trying to move them beyond their temporal desires to something eternal. He tries to connect them to who he is, but they keep missing his point. Their desires cloud their judgment and their ability to see. You know this still happens to human beings, right? You come and you read the Bible and you have a wrong desire and you find your text to give you what you want. You come to Christianity because you want a particular need to be met. At one level, we all start that way, but the question is, is that the only reason that you are coming? And what John is going to do here is to show us an alternative path. Rabbi, when did you come here? Second question. After Jesus talks to them about himself, he then says, what must we do to be doing the works of God? He just told them that the Son of Man will give you, and they immediately turn it it into themselves. They're guilty of selective hearing. They only hear what they want to hear. They say to Jesus, in effect, tell us what God requires and we'll do it. And what happens here is their arrogance and their self-trust is quite evident. It's the problem that all of us have, our assumptions that we're right and our confidence is the very thing that stands in the way of us trusting in Jesus. So if you're here today and you know that you're a mess and you don't trust yourself, that's a great place to be. If you come to church broken, weary and at the end of your rope so to speak you may think this is a disaster what you don't know is that actually could be the very beginning of the ultimate transformation of your soul and it may be that God has lined up all the circumstances of your life in order to pull down all of the props in order for you to take a really careful look at what's on the inside entrance into the kingdom doesn't happen by what we do. Look at what Jesus says in verse 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. So he tells them, this is what you need to do. You need to believe in the one whom he has sent. Jesus is attempting here to break through their hardened unbelief and help them to see that they need to believe in him. And what happens is their desires and their longing to have their needs met are colliding with the reality that they have to deal with Jesus personally. The question is, are they going to trust Jesus to meet their needs? That's the issue. And so then that leads to a third question. 
They said to him in verse 30, here it is, what sign do you do that we may see and believe? What work do you perform? Now listen, John is setting this conversation up so that you just wanna go, come on! For crying out loud, it's the bread of life right in front of you. It's Jesus, he's the son of man. And these people are like, how'd you get here? And what do we need to do? And why don't you prove who you are? John is highlighting unbelief so that you as a reader could look at that and go, unbelievable. And then you could say, but what about me? Or if you're a Christian, to see their unbelief and go, yep, I know exactly what that's like. That's what I was like. Jesus corrects their wrong interpretation they, they say things like this. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So they even quote the Bible. <laughs> Jesus says to them in verse 32, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. Notice he's turning it, turning it, turning it. Verse 33, for the bread of God Jesus says it very clearly. Is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world? What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, I'm the bread. I've been sent from God. The manna thing in the Old Testament was meant to be something that pointed to something greater than that. Yes, it provided for you physically, but it was ultimately a sign to remind you that it was God who provided for you. And I'm the one, I'm the gift, I'm the provision that God has sent. And here we have these crowds who keep missing Jesus because they want to have their desires and their needs met. They want to do it on their own and they want Jesus to prove to them that he is who he claims to be. Now, aren't you glad that problem went away in the first century? Listen, one of the greatest barriers to coming to Jesus is the fact that we come with the wrong motives. We're like, Jesus, just fix my kid and I'll believe in you. Just get me a better job, help me to get out of debt, and I'll believe in you. I don't want to go to hell, so just I believe in you, if that's what it takes, then that's what I believe. Or some of you want Jesus to write it in the sky. You want to see the words Jesus in the clouds. But the problem with all of us in our human condition, and this is just true for every single human being, is that we have very creative ways to take the truth of what Jesus says and we look at it through a skeptical lens and we won't believe the thing that we should believe even though we think we would believe it and we don't. Jesus is pressing in here on these wrong desires and if you're a Christian, this should be a very sober reminder because you can reflect on the desires of your former life that held you captive. With a little bit of history, you can now look back on your life and my guess is, like me, you can look at your life and go, I have no idea, I had no idea how blind I was. I had no idea how, how wrong my thinking was. I thought there were desires that I had that were right and in fact they're wrong and I was willing to justify those desires and were it not for the grace of Christ, I'd still be convinced those desires were the right desires. The tragedy of the human condition is that we are blind while being convinced that we can see. 
Notice how this text ends. In verse 34, it ends, Jesus has said, I'm the bread of life. He tells them, he's come down from heaven, the son of man can give them life, and then they say to him, sir, give us this bread always. (laughs) These keep coming back to bread, 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 give us this bread, give us this bread, give us this bread. John wants you to be frustrated with these people. He wants you to look at this text and go, come on, it's Jesus, give up on your bread thing. What's the deal? He wants us to see the tragedy of unbelief. Now what he does next is he helps us to understand who Jesus is because Jesus goes into this unbelievable statement about him being the bread of life. Look at what he says. This is some of the most important sentences in the entire New Testament. Jesus says to them, I am the bread of life. I mean, he just lays it out there. I am the bread of life. Notice the promise. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. What this means is that Jesus satisfies something so deep in the human heart that can't be satisfied in any other way. That's what Augustine was saying when he says, you made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. It means that you were made in the image of God. You were made to have a relationship with your creator. It means that sin creates a barrier between you and God and it creates this broken restlessness where you're trying all of your life to fill the hole in your soul with all sorts of things and until you meet Jesus, nothing fits. No relationship, no job, no amount of money, no substance, no vocation, no, no, no vacation. None of it will satisfy. It'll always be short. And Jesus says the reason that everything is short is because he is the bread of life. This church isn't the bread of life. This service isn't the bread of life. Christianity as a religious system isn't the bread of life. Jesus is the bread of life. Now this is the first of seven I am statements in John's gospel. In other places, we'll hear Jesus say, I am the light of the world, I am the gate, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, I'm the true vine. So Jesus does this a lot, but in this setting, he says, I am the bread of life, and he's using this metaphor to connect himself to God's providence in his provision. So he provides through manna in the wilderness. Manna was the food that God sent the people while they wandered. It sustained the life of the people, and what Jesus says is, I'm from God. I'm the life-sustaining thing that you need, and that thing that you need that will create satisfaction of your thirst and your hunger, that is me. Look at verse 36. Here's the tragedy, here's the contrast. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. There it is. Jesus says, I'm the bread of life, you see me, you know it, but yet you don't believe. And then verses 37 to 39 are really important and they're really mysterious. If you don't like mystery, you won't like the Bible. The Bible puts things out there for us that we know they connect somehow in the future, but we don't always see how. And and by the way, if you want to be able to figure out God and everything, then you would in fact be God. God isn't subservient to the human understanding of rationality or enlightenment thinking. God is beyond even our full understanding. And this is what Jesus says, all 
that the Father gives me will come to me. So the idea is there are people that have been given to Jesus and they will come to him and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me. So there's a divine plan and this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me but raise it up on the last day. What he's talking about here is the sovereignty of God in salvation. He's talking about the fact that we believe, but we believe because God is drawing us to believe. Verse 37, Jesus indicates that God is on a mission to save people. That's why he uses language like all that the Father gives me will come to me. In other words, God is not passively sitting back waiting for people to believe in him. He's not on a fishing expedition. He's not throwing out gospel lures out into the ocean of unbelief and hoping someone somewhere along the line bites on his offer of salvation. He's not on a sales pitch to try and convince you to coming into his plan. Instead, the idea is that God is moving on the hearts of people whose hearts have misplaced affections. God is opening people's eyes. He is wooing their hearts. He's lining up the circumstances of their life in order to point them to Jesus. The posture of God in salvation is Jesus is storming the castle of unbelief, marching in, killing unbelief, and flying a new flag in that castle. Jesus is on the move. He's calling people to himself. Now, for some of you, you immediately go to a place where you're like, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. How is that fair? How is it fair that God woos some hearts and while others' hearts are unmoved? And that's where, to be very honest with you, I, I don't know how to answer that question. In fact, I think Romans 9 just leaves that question where it is. Some people try and reconcile it. They say, well, God knows who would choose him, so those are the ones he goes after. I, that doesn't help me. I don't think that's how Romans 9 solves it. Romans 9 just leaves it. It says, believe, but knowing that you don't believe unless God woos you. But the challenge is that John 6 is not about fairness. John 6 is about unbelief. And the reason that Jesus says this is not because he's trying to make the case regarding what is fair and what isn't. Jesus is addressing what seems to be the hard granite rock of unbelief in the culture in which he is now doing his ministry. And what he's saying is this, unbelief is an ultimate I am. What he's saying is the blindness of the human heart is not the thing that will ultimately win, God will. What he's saying is that I will lose nothing of all that has been given me, and the reason he won't lose anything is because he's not only the bread of life, he is the bread of life. So rather than this being some fatalistic text that diminishes your hope, this text should make you shout for joy, especially if there's somebody who's not in this room, who's not converted, who you think is completely blinded, and what in the world is your hope? Your hope is Jesus can get them. Your hope is that unbelief, as vast as it is, doesn't rule the world, Jesus does. As exasperating as the failure is to see who Jesus is, as exasperating as it is that people 
seem to have hearts that are dead to what he says, Jesus can invade that soul and woo them. In other words, a lifetime of blindness to what Jesus is all about is not ultimate. Jesus can break through. So if you have a family member who you, in your mind, think there's no hope, like they've heard it, 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 here's the answer. The answer is them hearing it isn't the answer. They need to hear it. But the ultimate answer is Jesus breaking into their life. And that's how we pray for people who have not yet become a Christian. Now, there's some of you here that I just tipped you off to what your grandmother or your mom or dad have been praying for years. Little did you know, as your mom or dad went to bed at night, they knelt inside their bed and they said, would you open our son's eyes? Would you help him or her to see the beauty of who you are, Jesus? And here you are in this service, and guess what may be happening right now? The fulfillment of your parents' best hope or your friend's constant prayer for you could be happening in this very moment, whereas the words of John 6 land on your soul. A week ago, you would have said, no way, but inside something says now, wait a minute. And what you need to know, when that begins to happen, it is a sign that God is on the move. If you're a Christian, friend, that's what happened to you. Jesus went and found you. He rescued you. He demonstrated his love to you. And when you came to faith in Christ, the other hope is this. When Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out the older you get as you look towards your future, the more you know about your soul, you know how wicked you are. What is your only hope that you're going to make it all the way to the end? It's not in you. Your only hope is this. If Jesus did it, I can't undo it. That's where assurance of salvation comes from. If Jesus was the one who, who caused new life, if he was the one who's birthed me again, And my rest and my hope and my confidence can be in him. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Now, it'd be great if this was it, if Jesus ended. Whoever looks on the Son in verse 40 believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Mic drop, peace out, done. <laughs> no. Because John's purpose in this chapter is not just to tell you what Jesus says. It's also to show you the contrast of unbelief so that you would just go, come on. He's the bread of life. He's right there. Believe. So that John would say to you, use the same mirror, believe. Now we find the wrong thinking. If you look ahead to verse 59, all the way at the end, you'd see it says that Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Apparently, the, these people found him teaching in the synagogue, and now we see that there's like religious Jews who, who grumbled about him, because not only do we have wrong desires, but now we have wrong thinking. Jesus said, I am the bread of life that came down from heaven, and they grumbled that he said this. And they said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I come down from heaven? So here's the problem. It's true, he's the son of Joseph. and it, it, His father and mother, not his physical father being Joseph, but his family was Joseph and Mary, that's true. 
And yet the problem is, is these religious leaders, they know so much they don't know anything. They know what they know, but they don't know what they should know, and that's the point. The tragedy of unbelief is not only the desires that are wrong, but also the thinking that's wrong, and often people fall into one of two ditches. Either they're blinded by their desires or they're blinded by their thinking. One commentator says this, so long as a man remains and is content to remain confident in his own ability without divine help to assess experience and the meaning of experience, he cannot come to the Lord, he cannot believe. So the crowd came because of what they thought they wanted, but now these religious leaders are talking about Jesus because of what they think they know. Look how Jesus responds. Jesus answered them, do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone who has seen the Father except, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. I mean, it, it can't be any clearer than this. And then Jesus goes on, your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I give, and the bread that I will give, sorry, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Jesus just laid it out there. It's so incredibly clear if you know what he's talking about. And then look at verse 52. The Jews disputed among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? <laughs> John just makes you want to go, <laughs> how can you not see this? And he wants you to take the Bible as a mirror and go, but do I see? Do I believe? Or do I keep kind of maneuvering around the truth that I've heard in order to find a way to refute it? Jesus says to them, verse 53, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. And as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And if you're a believer in Jesus, you read that text and go, that's awesome. And if you're an unbeliever, you're like, that's gross. <laughs> What's it, cannibalism? What does he mean, drink his blood and eat his flesh? Mm. It's just a matter of which angle you're coming at Jesus. He's using a metaphor, a metaphor when it comes to eating his flesh and drinking his blood. He's not speaking about cannibalism, nor is he referring to the Lord's Supper. He's talking about satisfaction and delight that can only be found in him. And when you know him, it's like you consume him. And we talk this way. We talk this way all the time. I'll give you an example. Um, when you read a book that you really like, you say, I devoured that book. You ate it? Or... 
I'm going to ruminate on that idea. Or I need to chew on that. Or I wish I wouldn't have said that because now I'm going to eat my words. If you're grandparents, you're the worst of all cannibalizers. Because you say things like this. Yeah, we were with our grandkids all weekend. Oh, I could eat them, right? No one's like, whoa. We know exactly what you mean. What does it mean? It means you are so enamored with who they are. You so love the thing that is in front of you that you consume it because it is life-giving and full of joy. And believers in Jesus, that is who the risen Christ is to us. So the point is simple and incredibly profound, one that all of us must address. Here it is. You're a believer. Is your satisfaction in Jesus? Is he your bread? Do you live on him? Do you walk through life living on his supply, so enamored with who he is? Not things about him, not theology, not books about him, not even the Bible itself. You could love the Bible and not love Jesus. You're gonna read the Bible so you love Jesus. Are you trusting in your ability or are you relying on the power of who Jesus is? To live on Jesus as the bread of life means that he is our everything. So Augustine rightly said it. You have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless till they find their rest in you. But that wasn't the only incredible thing that Augustine said in the first century. He also said this. Believe, and you have eaten. The idea is that Jesus is the bread of life, and when you believe, you have feasted on who he is. Because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That is how wide and deep and beautiful and life-giving is the person of Jesus. He says, I'm the bread of life. I've come down, and if you are a part of me, you will never hunger. You will never thirst. Why? Because Jesus meets the need of a restless heart. He satisfies at a level that only he can satisfy. So stop chasing things that you think are going to satisfy. Stop running to things that you think are going to meet your needs because at the end of the day, the only thing that ultimately satisfies is the bread of life. We're now going to receive the Lord's table. And if you're a Christian, what we're about to do is a going to be a great reminder of what you've just heard. And if you're not a Christian, this is a moment for you to observe and watch to see what we believe. We're going to use these elements to remind us of important and critical truths. Now, we're going to serve you. There's some packaged materials. I'll explain how to open them right now. There's two layers. There's the wafer, and then there's also the juice underneath it. And while the music plays, go ahead and open those up and get those ready. And then use this time, that as a moment, just to prepare physically, but to prepare spiritually for this meal that we're about to receive. As the folks come, we're going to serve us. Let me pray.
Father, we thank you that we can use these elements to remind us of spiritual realities that sometimes can feel so distant that now are going to become very tangible with a small piece of bread and a little amount of juice. We're reminded that you are the bread of life and that you are the one who satisfies us so deeply. So use this moment, we pray, as a great illustration of your satisfying power. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.